on this episode of Journeys in Research. I think those years in the community was helpful because I'm not only working with people in the community, but because of my background in research, I always end up talking to my research colleagues who may not be in the community. So I maintain that contact. So that was helpful. I tend to gravitate people that share my philosophy and my thinking and vision. I don't want to work with people that are so narrow. Mm-hmm. I want to work with people that have an interest in other things. I'm Evangeline Coker, and you're listening to Journeys in Research. Journeys in Research is a podcast that transcends disciplines and explores what unites researchers. In each episode, we'll hear from an FSU researcher about how their own journey in research brought them where they are today. Dr. Frankie Wong is the McKenzie Endowed Professor of Health Equity Research at Florida State University. A psychologist by training, but based in the FSU's College of Nursing, Dr. Wong is the founding director of FSU's Center of Population Sciences for Health Equity. His research focuses on HIV and sexual health of sexual minorities, and his research projects have taken him to multiple countries, including China, Vietnam, South Africa, Russia, and Tajikistan. And Dr. Wong is currently the principal investigator for the Faculty Institutional Recruitment for Sustainable Transformation Grant. This grant was recently funded by the National Institutes of Health to transform institutional culture through inclusive excellence. We began the interview by talking about the start of his research journey. I have a very unique career trajectory and pathway. Uh, I did my PhD in social psychology, but even when I was a graduate student, my experience was different from my peers. Instead of working in the psych department, for some reason, my major professor placed me in an interdisciplinary laboratory. So I work mostly with political scientists doing polling, like say the Texas poll. So I would poll on issues such as like the importance of voting rights, stuff like that. Like, so it's a whole range of things like what kinds of health issue is important for Texans, what have you. So my exposure is beyond just psychology, it's about other things. So I end up took a academic job when I first got out in a traditional psych department. I generally like what I was doing. I had great graduate student, but I felt a little bit confining because like my training was much more interdisciplinary than just psychology. So I took a leave of absence and tried to explore other opportunity. I went to Boston, not really knowing exactly what I was doing. <laughs> I just went up there. I started working for the health department. After that, I decided that I want to kind of like uh, get my hands dirty and doing health programming. So working in community-based agency. Mm. So completely had nothing to do with my training. So I was developing healthcare program, social service program for Asian immigrant refugees. So you're talking about like, all right, how do you get people to come in for screening, health screening, especially those that are undocumented, like um, don't have health insurance, stuff like that. But meanwhile, I continue to maintain my research because I have a relationship with Boston University. So I was able to continue to do my research on the side as well as learning about other things. Those experiences are invaluable 
because as I was moving up in the community environment, I have to learn how to write program implementation grant, which is not scientific grant. So I learned a lot about how to write grants. I learned about budget, all, all kinds of stuff. I never learned when I was a grad student. Yeah. Then in 2000, I decided that I went back to New York uh, for personal reasons, because one of my friends was dying from HIV. I was his primary caretaker. And I was still working in the community at that time, even when I went to New York. After Mark passed away, I just decided, uh, well, maybe I should go back to academia. So, and it was about the time I met my partner, who's now my husband. Uh, so I moved to Washington, D.C. That was the transition back into academia full time. Mm -hmm. And then from there on, it just completely academic types of work. But those here in the community give me a very different perspective of what does it mean by research? Like we researchers can talk about research, yeah. but sometimes it's so devoid of reality of people living in the community. How would you suggest other researchers who might be thinking, man, I need to branch out and do more community service? I think it's important to have an open mind. These days, research becomes so specialized, especially in our doctoral training. It's so specialized. We start to forget there are other perspectives to look at research. Mm -hmm. My other interest is actually in history. I enjoy reading history and physics for half of you. And I read a lot of like, like um, biography, like nonfiction types of work. If you think about HIV, everyone is talking about HIV these days from the perspective of as a chronic disease, like, okay, cytokine, CD4 count, viral load, what have you. But HIV is more than just about biological diseases. HIV is about a lot of social issue. Mm -hmm. So Susan Sontag, illness as a metaphor, right? So that gives you a different perspective. I think if you're willing to open up your mind and listen to other people, it makes you a better researcher. Yeah. Yeah. Was that something you were just drawn to, that interest in other disciplines or even topics like history? And that physics? has always been part of my thing, because I was debating whether I would go into history, philosophy. I started actually in philosophy. Oh, okay. I started in philosophy, but uh, my father was really, really upset coming from an Asian family. He said, what are you going to do with a degree in philosophy? But my mother was very supportive. So I thought, well, maybe I'll pick psychology. It's kind of like a middle ground. But I always have an interest in other things. Could you talk a bit about the research problem you're trying to solve with HIV research? Well, HIV has been with us for four decades now. So it's no longer a new like, disease. These days, HIV is a chronic disease. So uh, I say my best friend has been living with HIV since 1987. You're talking about 30-something years, right? So once you have HIV, there's all kinds of other health consequences. Someone who living with HIV has a much higher chance of getting hypertension, cardiovascular disease, all kinds of other ailments. So the key is that we still do not know enough about how HIV affects all these other health conditions. So my goal these days is focusing on HIV and hypertension. And of course, as you grow old, you the likely to develop hypertension. The types of food you eat also like, uh, affect hypertension. For example, like a lot of like, sodium intake and things like that. We cannot change somebody from HIV positive to HIV negative, but we probably can modify behavior that lower the risk of developing hypertension and cardiovascular disease. Independent of HIV, 
What are some of the factors that also contribute to hypertension? Can we modify those factors so that we can minimize the hypertension? So you do a lot of international research, right? You're, you have grants going on in, in Vietnam and Tajikistan. Yes, I started out doing some domestic work, but I started doing international work probably in early 2000. Mm-hmm. The reason being that at that time, politically in our country, if you're doing HIV work, most of the HIV, because like former President Bush, he started, he started up with the PEFAR program. So a lot of money go to other country. So in some strange convoluted way, many of us are chasing the money, right? You follow where the fun thing is, what have you. Uh, I got to international work by accident. I had an uh, NIH study, domestic study, but at the time, National Institute of Drug Abuse have this initiative called the South Africa Initiative. So my colleague said, like, would you be interested to work in South Africa? I said, sure. I know nothing about South Africa. So I got the study. I got a supplement to do work in South Africa. And then I got a supplement to do work in China. That's how it started my international career. So compared to domestic research, did, do you feel like you had to go through a learning curve to work internationally? I think yes or no, it's just like anything else, like when you have to work with like a different, let's say, a government agency, they have their own regulation. Uh, both China and South Africa, even though your study is funded by the United States, from their perspective, you're collecting data in their, own, in their country. Mm-hmm. You don't own the data, they own the data. In China, if you collect any types of biological specimen, you cannot ship it out, ship it back to the United States. Oh. You have to find a way to analyze those specimens in China. Mm-hmm. So each country has its own little system. And obviously in China, it's a, it's a communist country. Not being from there, I mean, even though I know quite a bit about the, the society and culture, what have you, eventually after I got to know my friend, my collaborator, he told me something that I was shocked. He said, during the first few years when you were working with us, every time when you visit us, I have to file a security report. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So I know that like, they probably have everything about me. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of research were you doing there? In China, the HIV situation started out with, like, say, blood donor and injection drug use. And somehow in the mid-2000, it becomes sexually transmitted. One group that are at the highest risk is men having sex with men. They may not identify themselves as gay or bisexual, but they have sex with other men. And it becomes such a big issue, in particular among a small subsample of this MSM. They are known by the people, they they call them money boy. Initially, I thought, well, there must be some American come up with this term. But no, turn out it was a local homegrown term because these days you have exposure to all kinds of like international media. So these are men who sell sex work to other men for money. They're male commercial sex worker. But the convoluted nature in China is like prostitution is defined by a woman selling sex to a man. Mm-hmm. So there was actually a case a man selling sex to a man uh, was arrested, would have you. The judge let him go. 
because it's just that prostitution is defined by women saying sex to a man. In your case, there's nothing on the book. Yeah. So that's how they got the term money boy? Yes. Yeah. So money boy is a major issue, and MSM is still the highest risk group in China. So my initial work in China is really look at the social pattern, like, like what are the social factors, like a risk factor that put this individual at risk, what have you. Homosexuality is actually legal in China, but still there's still a lot of stigma associated with it. If you are a man, uh, the expectation is you eventually marry mm-hmm. and you have a family. Ideally, you should produce a male child because male is, is so important. So you have all these extra pieces. So many individuals uh, live double lives. Was it, was it difficult to get um, volunteers for your studies given the stigma going around? Uh, no. What is really interesting is that the Chinese government took a very practical approach to this. They said, this is a public health issue. Some people might not agree with their lifestyle, but we have a public health issue at hand. So they were very proactive in terms of working with the community uh, to promote safer behavior. And um, I started out working with a community partner uh, who have a lot of access to the local bars, what have you. In big cities like Shanghai, uh, Beijing, there are all kinds of bars. And some of these bars are fairly westernized. Actually, there's one particular bar in Shanghai when I first doing my outreach work there, I was completely stunned. They were actually modeled after the bar tunnel in New York City. Oh. <laughs> it, it, it is stunning. I mean, so, I mean um, so you have this really convoluted hybrid type of situation. Uh, obviously, it's not the same when you go to local, like, say, like second tier city. Uh, say Shanghai, Beijing is first world city these days. In China, it was very different when I first started out. China today is very different from when I first started working from there. So, Do you still do research in China? Uh, no, I haven't been back in almost five years now. It's quite difficult these days to having a study funded by U.S. government to do work in China. I still work with my colleague, mostly on paper, on like publication and stuff like that. But I do not have any active ongoing study funded by us to do work in China. So how do you find the right kind of collaborators for your projects? I think those years in the community was helpful because I'm not only working with people in the community, but because of my background in research, I always end up talking to my research colleagues who may not be in the community. So I maintain that contact. Yeah. So that was helpful. I tend to gravitate people that share my philosophy and my thinking and vision. I don't want to work with people that are so narrow. Mm-hmm. I want to work with people that have an interest in other things. Mm-hmm. I feel like uh, interdisciplinary research opportunities, as far as grant opportunities that are out there, it seems to be growing. There, NIH, NSF want more interdisciplinary collaborations. Do you find that? And do you feel like it's getting easier now? I, I think definitely NIH. I don't have much experience with NSF, so I cannot speak to that. But I do think NIH is definitely much more interdisciplinary. I think the other reason I was able to uh, work with different 
from people from different types of uh, discipline was because when I transitioned back in 2000 to academia, mm -hmm. I went into public health instead of into psychology. So public health, you end up working with like people that are in medicine, physician, all, all kinds of people mm. from different backgrounds. That keeps you involved in the community as well. You're not stuck in, in the department so much. It helps because uh, I when I first went in, I went to GW, George Washington. And then from there, I went to Georgetown. I stayed in Georgetown for about five years or so. And that was a very interesting period because I was very fortunate to be in the department called International Health. My chair, who is a friend now, um, he was at the World Bank. At the bank, when you turn 62, you have to retire. So that was the, at least way back then. So yeah. he's a German national. So he said, no, I'm too young to retire. So he went to Georgetown. But then, of course, the bank turned around and continued to employ him as a consultant. So then I got to absorb why Bernard. I said, how do people in the bank doing healthcare research? Because his last position at the bank, he was the VP in charge of healthcare service research for the continent of Africa. He is a consumer of research. So it helped me by talking to him to advise how I can hone in my research questions. Oh, that's fascinating. He was like your end user. Yeah, he was an end user. So because uh, he originally is from Germany, mm -hmm. so he's a, I think he's a transit surgeon. Uh, eventually he got SCD. So he has a very different perspective because I did, like Germans talk about health, German medicine is very different from the United States. But since he worked in World Bank, he has a lot of experience about working with different types of people across the world and living in the United States. So, so I was very fortunate to like run into or have encounter mm -hmm. with all this individual. So what advice would you give to a researcher who's felt very siloed, stuck in their department and has decided I, I need to branch out and make a connection with someone in a completely different field, but I don't know how? Well, there's no question a stupid question, just ask. If you don't ask, you will never know, right? Um, as my late mother always say, that try everything once. If you don't like it, you don't have to do it again. Yeah. So be adventurous, just do it. Journeys in Research is a production of the Office of Research Development at Florida State University. To stay up to date with content and to see the other resources that we offer, please visit our homepage, ord.fsu.edu. Music for this episode by Ketza. Special thanks to Mike Mitchell, Noor Khan, and our guest, Dr. Frankie Wong. I'm Evangeline Coker. Thanks for listening.